Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to Balanced Podcast with me, Molly Raycroft, a well-being and health journalist with a passion for living better. In this special episode, we'll be bringing you a collection of shorter conversations with women who are all breaking the bias in different areas of society. By sharing their stories, we hope we can inspire you to continue the conversation in your own lives beyond International Women's Day. Today, we'll be talking about ADHD and autism diagnoses, the intersectionality of being black and female or gender non-conforming, and managing menopause in the workplace. Firstly, we'll be discussing the disparity between genders when it comes to diagnosing ADHD and autism. Symptoms can manifest differently within women in comparison to men, and as a result, a huge proportion of women and non-binary people are being diagnosed later in life, if at all. This is exactly what happened to Jess Joy, co-founder of I Am Paying Attention a platform aimed at providing resources and a supportive community for neurodivergent women and non-binary people. Hey Jess, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. And we're talking to you today because you are the co-founder of I Am Paying Attention, which is basically a platform slash community that you've created for women and non-binary people about mainly ADHD and autism. And you've got so many articles on there, videos, you've got chat rooms, you've got workbooks, (laughs) guides, checklists, and really importantly you've got a pre-diagnosis manual and a Mm post-diagnosis manual Mm -hmm. which I also think is super important for what we're going to be talking about today especially around diagnosing women Mm -hmm. with ADHD and autism because there Mm -hmm. seems to be a real disparity there compared to men. Um, Absolutely. So my first question is why did you start I Am Paying Attention? What's the story behind that? So me and Mia the other half of I Am Paying Attention, my business partner and best friend, have been friends for nearly 10 years now. We first met at uni and to be honest, we just clicked straight away. It's always been a really easy, close friendship pretty much from day one. And we now know that that's probably like not only because we have similar morals, but also because they're both neurodivergent. And so we have both been on a bit of a journey. We had always supported each other throughout those 10 years through issues in relationships, in careers, in, you know, issues within our family, that kind of thing. And I guess we just have really similar communication styles, again, probably because we're neurodivergent. But we basically came to a conclusion um, whilst we were in lockdown that we should probably do a little bit more research on ADHD because we'd both seen things online that were resonating with us both quite a lot. So we started exploring it at similar times and all of the backwards and forwards tweets that we were sharing between ourselves and the articles, we, yeah, realised that we both had ADHD and fast forward, we have now also realised that we're both autistic. But the thing that we'd really realised was that if we hadn't had each other to navigate those journeys, those journeys would have looked extremely different we had such incredible support in each other and although there are some amazing resources online already we really felt like we weren't being represented adequately and you know I talk about this quite often when I say that a lot of neurodivergent people I know and who I've had the pleasure of meeting are you know, such huge characters. And I think quite often 
a lot of the resources are aimed at either parents of people with ADHD or children. So we got to this point where we just thought, let's create our own space. We were intentional about making sure that our content would appeal to people with brains like ours. And we're here today. So we started in October 2020. And nearly a, a year and a half on we've uh, got a wonderful incredible community of uh, yeah just over 80,000 people I think now yeah I, I was looking at your Instagram this morning and it's like 82k followers which is just insane <laughs> and it just also it's a massive achievement for you but it also just shows how much this is needed because as you say it's so geared towards child diagnoses and predominantly men and I think that's maybe because when you think of ADHD the stereotype is often like a naughty boy at school that doesn't want to pay attention to anything maybe that's why but yeah there there just seems to be nothing out there and the fact that it's also aimed at parents of children is also missing the mark because a lot of women are being diagnosed so late aren't they so off the back of that what's problematic about society's current perspective of ADHD and autism and women do you think? So I think it often doesn't account for masking and if people aren't familiar with that term that is essentially people who aren't neurotypical adopting behaviours or mirroring behaviours in attempt to navigate life in essentially a world that wasn't really created with us in mind and so I think it doesn't really take into consideration how much energy we have to spend in order to actually survive so sure there are some things we might manage um, but it doesn't mean that we're not really struggling to be able to actually get there and I think um, when it comes to assessments, we have our achievements held against us constantly. Um, we've had a lot of conversations with people who have talked about how they've gone through an ADHD or an autism assessment and they've been met with, oh, well, you did well in school or you're holding a relationship down. And I think what that does is just, you know, further divides us. And prevents us from being able to trust medical professionals um, because the reality is a lot of medical professionals are still not adequately informed. And I suppose when the medical professionals are maybe not considering your concerns, it gives you this sense of imposter syndrome because you think you might be neurodivergent mm -hmm. and you, you're different to other people, but you can't say oh, I have ADHD or I have autism because that's not being confirmed. And then you feel like your request for your needs to be met is just you overreacting. Absolutely. And I think, as we just mentioned, um, that so many of us have to mask in order to just survive. Mm -hmm. um, we have already spent so much of our lives convincing ourselves that we're just not doing enough and if we just worked a bit harder then we'd manage and so I think for a lot of us it actually takes a lot of courage to be able to even sit with the idea that we are neurodivergent and I think you know to be met with oh no like actually you're you're not ADHD or you're not autistic is massively detrimental to a lot of people and obviously some of us have varying levels of support and privilege and I think you know some of us have a great support network and some of us do not and for those of us who do not it's more than just I don't think I'm enough it's for some of us whether we can survive or whether we can't and it, it feels as well to me that it particularly affects women because often growing up girls are kind of pushed towards you know being a good girl like following social cues always do what's 
asked of you you know be considerate and and not that boys aren't taught that but I don't think they are pushed as much in that direction and then as a woman you feel like a failure because you can't fit in with those same social norms as everyone else absolutely and I think so many people find out that they're neurodivergent off of the back of a burnout because they are desperately trying to keep going and keep trying to make it work there are so many neurodivergent people that I've spoken with who have just gone through resources and tools and time management techniques and all of these different approaches thinking that that will be the one that works for them when the reality is that so many of them just aren't suited to our brains and so yeah we reach this point where it's like oh okay no I actually have to recognize that this isn't working and there is no energy left for me to keep going for um for listeners um a, a stat I found earlier that really just hammers home the point is that in England between 2019 and 2020 33,000 women were diagnosed with ADHD compared to 100,000 men that's a difference of 67,000 and it's not that just men are more susceptible to having ADHD is it it's just that it's absolutely not it is completely overlooked Just to add to what you were saying, I think you've got it absolutely spot on. I think we're socially conditioned and we are expected of so much more than men are. And I think, you know, earlier we touched on stereotype of it, just ADHD especially being something that young boys have at school when they're sort of bouncing off the walls. And I think it's also a stereotype that does a disservice to not only girls and non-binary people, but also I think there are stereotypes that are predominantly molded, I guess, around the way that white boys present as well. Like, you know, I've spoken with plenty of people and the way that black people or people of colour are treated for presenting with the exact same behaviours is completely different. And I think just as prevalent in women and non-binary people as it is men. And I remember um, reading in an article at one point, um, which really resonated with me about how, you know, there might be two children at school who haven't done their homework and they realise the night before the deadline. And quite often a girl with ADHD might realise and rope their parent into trying to help them and basically still produce the work but just fueled by panic and anxiety so they'll still present the work but maybe with some mistakes or just not meeting criteria and it might be the case that a boy with ADHD will say you know I didn't do it and that's that so we kind of go under the radar and I think it's difficult because although I'm keen not to gender ADHD or autism or neurodivergence too much it would be ignorant not to acknowledge that there is a huge gap at the moment obviously there are some people who are not a girl or not non-binary who experience the same as we do but due to as we said what is expected of us It happens so often that we're just completely flying under the radar. So what can we do to kind of break through this bias and around neurodivergent women? Because at the moment, it just feels like it's such a grassroots thing in changing the situation. It really does. I completely agree with you. I think, honestly, the biggest thing that we can do is talk about it. And I think for neurodivergent people it doesn't always feel safe to do so but if it does feel safe to do so look at where you can unmask and look at what standards you're holding yourself to and who set those standards because quite honestly a lot of those standards that we're subconsciously holding ourselves to are oppressive and ableist and it's just not realistic for us to be able to meet them so I think a huge part of my own healing has been about intentionally setting my own standards that I can work to and I think for neurotypicals it's really about educating themselves on what ableism does look like 
what neurodivergence looks like when we're talking about it believer you know for example the whole hold eye contact when you're talking to me interest doesn't really look the same for everyone I think so much of it really does boil down to ableism and I've had to unpick a lot of my own internalized ableism but I think it really is about listening and being proactive in educating yourself I feel like an important thing to remember it as well is a lot of people who are neurodivergent get accused of being oversensitive or needy. And if you are accused of that, remember, it's not you being needy. It's you not having your needs met. And that's why people say that. So I'm sure there will be people listening to our conversation that maybe have either been diagnosed with ADHD or autism or both or suspect they may have it but don't actually know which is obviously the importance of your guides because a lot of people aren't diagnosed because it takes so long to be diagnosed and the process Mm. is a real fight to get to that stage what would your advice be for any woman or non-binary person who's been diagnosed or hasn't been diagnosed and are currently Mm. on their journey I think Initially, I was really, really keen to assign myself a label. And I think for so many of us, that is really validating. And it is great to have a label and to make sense of your struggles. Um, But I think sometimes a lot of us find ourselves actually quite distressed over not knowing and not knowing if we should identify or if we shouldn't identify with this label. But I think immerse yourself in the community if you are taking on you know tips or adjustments you know if you are learning from neurodivergent people and you find that their tools are helping you don't stress too much about the label if it isn't helpful for you I think a huge part of it is just about getting to know yourself better and being able to make adjustments to your life that work for you and really just healing from that shame. I think having a community is a huge part of it, especially if you don't have people that you feel safe with or you don't feel like you have people around you who understand. There are so many spaces online where I think people actually feel like they can be genuinely themselves I'd really like to think that ours is one of them Um, but even if it isn't ours there are so many spaces that I think can be a huge comfort to you whilst you're just exploring neurodivergent things. Great and if people do want to join your community they can follow you on Instagram at I am paying attention and you also have a website with all your resources which are super helpful and I highly recommend. Um. oh thank you so much Molly yeah we um so we post quite a bit of content on Instagram and then we have a members area so as you mentioned earlier uh, we have quite a few resources now the pre and post um, diagnosis or realization depending on whether you go for a diagnosis medically or not and a lot of those are free for our members as well but yeah I think it is just a hugely comforting space to um get to know yourself a bit better next we'll be talking specifically about the experiences of black and mixed race women within the gender equality discussion actor Sherelle Skeet is someone who noticed a safe space was needed to acknowledge the experiences of those who sat within the intersection of being both black and female or non-binary. You may know Sherelle from her Amazon series Hannah, but she's also co-founded Blacktress, a community aimed at women in the creative industry who are from the African diaspora. Hi Sherelle, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Hi Molly, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. Um, and we're speaking to you today because we're going to be talking about Black Trust, which is basically mm-hmm. a network slash community for Black and mixed race women and non-binary people in creative fields. 
and mm-hmm. you've got a load of workshops, meetups, initiatives, all aimed at creating a safe space and support network. And it's predominantly, you do have a few events for women of all ethnicities, but it's predominantly aimed at creating space exclusively for Black and mixed race women and non-binary people. I think that touches really nicely on kind of going a bit deeper into gender equality and not just, you know, banding women as a whole together. So I think a really nice place to start would be to understand what's the story behind Blacktress's creation? Is it, is it grounded in first-hand experiences? Blacktress was born out of people feeling isolated. I was not a few years out of drama school and I'd recently um, just done a show at the National Theatre. Um, it was a play called Amen Corner by James Baldwin, who writes amazing, he writes really well uh, for women. And um, I was the youngest uh, woman on that play. And the way that the women in that production supported me and gave me guidance. And these women who have been treading, treading the theatre boards for, you know, decades and decades, who are pioneers in their own right. They're legends in their own right, but don't necessarily get the same recognition um, as someone who isn't Black. And for me, it was an amazing experience and opportunity to not only just watch their craft, but also to build um, sisterhood, friendship, community, to have the time and opportunity to um, ask questions, to realise that some of the things that were happening to me and listening to what their experiences were, that it was cyclical, or they thought that things had moved on for the younger generation, that things hadn't moved on. So then it was about kind of myself um, and one of the other co-founders, we decided to get a group of women together and just have a dinner. So we called that a seat at the table. And the idea is that we take up space in a restaurant, we sit down, we break bread and have that time where we're not in the audition room, we're not in the rehearsal space. And to basically just say, I see you first and foremost. And secondly, be able to, yeah, celebrate each other and really identify the the things that were going on that maybe we felt were obstacles that were holding us back um, from really being our best selves whether sometimes it's access to you know literally funding and money economic economical barriers emotional barriers and also just knowing that the industry structurally was built not necessarily bearing the specific needs of women or non-binary people or black people people of the African diaspora or people who are not white basically and um, what that brings up even, you know, the only thing that kind of combines um, these people together is identifying as being part of the African diaspora and also defining as femme or woman. Now, that within that, there is a plethora of, of possibilities in terms of dialect and accents and geographically where you're from and, you know, whether that, whether, you know, you're a carer, whether you're a mother you know, queer identity, romantic relationships, friendships. And it was about kind of looking at how as artists as a whole, before we even step to do the work, what is the work that we need to do on ourselves? So this is kind of like, I know we're talking a lot now and it's really easy to take for granted the fact that we self-care, the word self-care gets thrown around, re, you know, as, as it does, it gets overused and somehow kind of loses it loses its meaning. So this was like five years ago when the idea of, I suppose, looking at having a drama therapist in a rehearsal room when you're looking at black trauma, especially after Black Lives Matter was not really a consideration where, you know, the conversations, which has always been ongoing, but has felt really kind of bubbling, but wasn't really a big thing around hair, you know, around the terminology that we use, just real subject matters that were happening within our own personal lives that once you're telling a story, you don't step out onto the road and it's like, oh, it doesn't exist anymore. Some of these characters, you're you're playing these characters or on the tin, it kind of says that, you know, we're doing diversity and you kind of turn up and you're the only person there and you realise that you are the diverse person. And then when you're experiencing aggressions or microaggressions, not knowing how to deal with that, it's a space to be able to, first of all, strip everything back that has maybe been put on you by your family, by society, by the yeah, by the way that you've been socialized and be like, who am I? What is the person that I want to be? And then from that place, that's where we can tell stories from because there hasn't been enough space or time to be able to explore what that is without feeling as though that you've got to fit into something, a cookie cutter version of what is already out there because this idea of there being token or one in, one out 
Um, there can only be one black woman or even when we're talking about race a lot of the time gender is not necessarily involved in that so again a lot of these conversations when we spoke about black actors doing really really well a lot of the examples that were brought up were male not many of them were you know gender non-conforming or um, woman woman identifying or you know female as a whole in terms of that representation of what the idea of success was in terms yeah so it was about bringing all of that together building community because we talk about self-love but also there is the love of a community as well sometimes it's about having a space to just have a conversation to get things off your chest to then be able to know what the next action is so ultimately that's what Blackress is achieving you mentioned there about there being a lot more conversations and I agree with you there has been a lot more conversations especially around race and also around gender equality but do you think specifically within those conversations about gender equality sometimes black voices can be overlooked within that? I think still in spaces where we're not able to speak about all the intersections that is an issue regardless of you know because then we'd also have to talk about disability as well and just everyone being involved in the conversation. I know for me, I realised that specifically when I was training to be an actor, understanding intersectionality, I know I keep using that word, but it was then understanding how when in situations where there is a, you know, a clear gender disparity that I felt as though I had to leave my experience as the child of a migrant and being of the African diaspora, being Caribbean, being working class, that there was only parts of myself that I could bring to the conversation because maybe I could, I wasn't able to talk about that because in that room, there weren't other people who had similar experiences to be able to connect or not necessarily that they had to have the same experience, but to allow space to talk about difference um, as opposed to saying that we're all the same. And I suppose these principles and these experiences are applicable beyond the creative field. I mean, if you're the only black woman in a business setting, that must also be very isolating. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You know, we've, we've had conversations around hair and how black women's hair has been politicized without even realizing and how that then affects even the way that people choose to present themselves in the workplace, how making the conscious decisions and just taking the space to listen. Like I remember having this conversation with, even when I'm turning up to a workplace, I've cut my hair recently, but when I had the big old Afro, I know I was very conscious of when I was entering a rehearsal space that I would consciously cover my hair because out of fear sometimes of kind of thinking like, oh, if someone touches it, what am I going to do? Do I want to deal with that today? I can't be bothered to deal with it. So, you know, what? I'm going to wear a head wrap today. 
sometimes that will be the decision and it won't it would just feel so normal that I'd had to be like a very conscious decision of being like okay well today I'm gonna have my afro out and I know that it might cause attention or people are gonna have questions or people are just gonna go in and touch it and do I have the emotional mental capacity to deal with that today so I'm you know in places like for example in Jamaica and also we've seen in like America where and even in like schools in this country where they've sent girls home with having braids or different colored braids and now we've started to understand and speak about you know cultural expression and it kind it goes really really deep because it's kind of then having to ask all of us specifically people who are not of that cultural background to be like well why do you see that as a threat why do you see that as um, you know that person just being and the the effect of that which is what Blattress is trying to heal is the fact that you know if you've been told that there's something wrong with you if the environment you're living in you've been told that the environment that there's something wrong with you therefore you feel as though you have to be the person to change and adjust and to assimilate and to take on this level of I suppose be, to be respectable to be accepted by whiteness in order to succeed. It's just I think what you're saying is just it really illustrates the varying levels of, you know, privilege that are within being a woman or a non-binary person. I mean, me, for instance, as a white woman, has never had to consider hair, really. But how can we continue kind of breaking the bias, especially around Black women and non-binary people in the workplace? Um, I think it's about, first of all, continuing to have conversations like this. I think it has to be about bringing people in. I think if if you look around the room and there's only people in that room that looks like you, then it's about kind of challenging the people who are bringing those people into the room. So that's obviously down to how we're hiring or recruiting people, how we look at what excellence is because, and, and the idea of where people are kind of being supported, you know, from the grassroots. Is there a problem in regards to access? Um, how can you make it more accessible for people who are of different backgrounds, who are not going to tread the path that person A will have treaded? Like, how can we find, how can we do the, do the work in terms of to reach different types of people? Because it's not just about how people, you know, as we say, um, skin folk ain't necessarily kin folk so it's not just about having a bunch of black and brown people and um, you know person who, ad- who identifies as, as having a disability or you know being neurodiverse I think it's also about diversity of thought we can't just have a bunch of people who all agree with each other I think it's really important to have it makes the work whatever it is that you're doing whether you're you know in a, a business boardroom in a corporate environment and um you know, to a creative process. I love the fact if I'm, you know, I'm in a play at the moment and we've got people from all different backgrounds to sit and listen, because that's the whole point of bridging the gap. And, you know, I'm here London-based and we're in such a wonderful bubble, I suppose, where majority of the rest of the country does not look like this. And I think it's really, really important that in every industry, at every level, there has to be the visible representation alone is not that's not the end it's the start but it's not the end it's also about having yeah diversity of thought in in having people who are who maybe are of refugee background migrant background people who who are from everywhere really all different walks of society because it makes the the quality of work better fundamentally yeah and I I suppose you may be a good person to ask this question to as you're in such a an industry that requires you to be so expressive but what would your advice be for a woman or non-binary person from the um, BAME community who doesn't feel confident expressing themselves right now? Uh, Yes I always think about this I know again I check my privilege I'm in a very privileged position where people like yourself ask me my opinion on things and I know it's taken me some time to even get to this point and not everyone is at that point so first of all I would say always find your tribe be yourself as whatever that is. I know that's easier said than done at times, but I always, I, I heard this quote on um, some YouTube motivational speaker video and it was really connect to who you are and what it is that you want to say and to, to be yourself. Cause otherwise, how are the people out there gonna find you? How are the people that are really your people gonna find you? Um, so find your tribe. And I think 
from that space, you're going to build confidence because these people are going to be your champions. They're going to wave your flag. When you're not feeling your greatest, they're going to be the ones that call you up, message you, meet up with you and say, you know what? Do you not know that you're amazing? Do you not know that like you can't forget that you are a boss and that um, it's okay to not be okay? Like all of the things that you need to hear and you need to be poured into, they're going to be able to do that for you. So I would really like find your tribe. And I think it's about kind of just allowing your units to flow. Like again, like wave your freak flag. I know all of us are kind of concerned about trying to fit in, which you know, it's a natural human thing, but it's also about like finding the, really celebrating the things that you enjoy, like whatever that might be. And I guarantee you will find your tribe and that will, that will do a lot of the work because in that sense of community, you will find liberation. And then you will also, it will help support you in understanding who you are and you know, the best version of yourself, because then you will start to feel safe. Even if you don't necessarily feel safe in being you yet, find those spaces where, where you can possibly start that journey and then that energy will happen and then you, you will feel safer in being you. So it's kind of like this kind of uh, flow of back and forth of, of energies pouring into a community and the community pours into you. That's been the survival of Blackdress, really. It's really a, a, pe a people movement more than anything yeah I just try and keep the uh the train moving I suppose but it's all down to whatever comes from the community and for women who are perhaps outside of the community that would also like to support do you have any advice for them on how they could go about that I think it's really important obviously spaces that are not for you obviously you don't enter them but I think it's really important to learn for example, a lot of people don't even know the history of, of Carnival. Like we've got Notting Hill Carnival back again. And I think, look at, try and find an, a new perspective. Be curious in, in, in order to understand. I think that's always really good. Like it's so interesting when going into spaces and if you're used to being the majority, go into spaces where you might be the minority and just learn and sit and watch. And I think you will find from that, your heart will just naturally open because... I think that the, the resilience and vitality of black and brown people across the globe is, is amazing and it's always found within culture. So, um, you know, whether you go into the theatre or listening to music or um, I feel like that, that will be the nucleus. Like, I don't want to tell people specifically what you've got to do or what, you know, there's plenty of over the past two years, there's been plenty of reading lists that have been going around that people can go and read books on and, and try and understand, like pick up some Audrey Lord if you, if you want to understand black feminism or some Alice Walker um, or Bell Hooks, um, if you want to understand her perspective on love. Um, there's plenty of things out there, but I think go and connect to spaces and just notice if you feel uncomfortable and try and figure out what that is and just sit with it. I think that's it. And then from there, you will know what, what action to take, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. And I should just say that although Blackdress is usually exclusively for Black and non-binary women, you do occasionally have yeah. um, events and fundraisers that are for all women to show that, go and show their support. So that's definitely that's worth it. investigating. And just before I let you go, um, if there's people listening to this that are, is like, yes, Blackdress is my tribe, how can they get involved? How can they come join you? So please follow us on all of our socials. So Blattress underscore UK on Instagram and on Twitter. We are going to have some more meetups throughout the rest of the year. I always feel like we're doing catch up. We are a very small team. So one thing that we're also trying to overcome is our own burnout. <laughs> so, um, but we will be having some meetups probably in April. So please, yeah, follow us on Instagram. We post everything on there. And then even just drop us a DM, introduce yourself um, if you are, if you are um, a Blattress or a supporter of Blattress, if you don't identify as black or woman, please still introduce yourself. And it means then we can, um, you can join the mailing list as well if you go to our website um, and yeah, you'll be automatically added to um, the mailing list if you sign up. So you'll get all of our ticket offers as well when we've got tickets going, when we're doing collaborations with theatres, which will sometimes drop on the day. So yeah, that's why I say encourage you to look on the socials. We'll put it on the stories and things like that.
Lastly, we'll be talking about menopause. Often, menopause happens between the ages of 45 and 55. However, premature menopause can happen from teenage years onwards, sometimes occurring naturally or as a result of surgery. This is exactly what happened to Stephanie Daniels, a menopause coach. Inspired by her own experience, she helps other women and non-binary people manage the symptoms that menopause entails and encourages a more positive perspective to being menopausal. Hi Stephanie, how are you? Hi Katie, how are you? Yeah, really good, thank you. And today we're going to be talking about something that affects a lot of women, which is menopause. And we're talking to you because you're a menopause coach, which is not something I've personally heard of before. So why did you decide to become a menopause coach? What's the story behind that? Um, I kind of fell into it and through a bit of an experience that I went through ended up going through the menopause it's funny because you started with we're all affected by it and my first uh, exposure to menopause was when my mum was waving a fan frantically sweating mumbling something about a hot flush and beyond that she didn't say a word to me um I think the menopause word was banded around a bit but I didn't really indulge her in conversation and, and push her for it I just we laughed we kind of made a joke out of it And then in 2015, she, unfortunately, she'd been struggling with ovarian cancer for about nine years. And she passed away um, really sadly because not only obviously because she was my mum, but because she, in my eyes, she knew everything. So any questions I had now remained unanswered. After she died, I got tested for the gene that she had, which um, led to her getting ovarian cancer. And it's the BRCA gene. And it came back that I was a carrier. And so as part of my preventative plan, I had my ovaries removed and that led to me going into the menopause. And I had a double mastectomy as well. All these things reduce your chances of getting uh, breast or ovarian cancer. Huge, huge amount. I think it's like 70%. So on paper, really losing my mum and the double mastectomy should have been the hardest thing, but it wasn't. It was going into the menopause that really hit me hard. Most people, when they go into the menopause, dip their toe in, they start missing a period here and there, their moods start getting out of control, they um, they, the sleeplessness, all these kind of things manifest uh, very slowly and gradually. When it's a surgical menopause, you slam right into the wall of the menopause really, really fast. So I found myself in this new world without my mum there for guidance and trying to recall all her, you know, anything she'd said about the menopause. And I realised very quickly, very suddenly, that she never spoke about it because you just didn't. So I was struggling with all these symptoms. I was totally floored by depression. I could not get out of bed. And then everywhere I was reading about the menopause, it was really, really dry and downbeat. And I just thought, what is going on? I am four, I was 37 at the time. I was like, I'm 37. My life is not over, you know, like sod this. So I started clambering my way out of this hole that I was in. And I started doing very, very small tweaks. So I started with my my food and I, you know, my way to get a handle on that was to fast. But I made a lot of mistakes with that. So I would fast for too long and then I would binge. So it was really trial and error of the fasting. I switched up my exercise. I started reading the right books, you know, and surrounding myself by the right people. So I worked with a lady called Cynthia Thurlow in uh, the States. We weren't really closely. She's now my mentor. And slowly but surely, I started to uh, get out of the hole. I started to climb a hill and then get on top of the mountain. And uh, once I was up there, I started to look around and I was thinking to myself, I do not want anyone else in my position. I don't want anyone else to go through the menopause and feel like I do. So I'm quite a confident person and I started to speak up about it. I started to almost switch the narrative from, oh my God, I'm in the menopause to I am in the menopause and I'm proud and you should be too. And so I just started, I'm quite a creative person as well. So I guess I channeled that creativity and that confidence into my Instagram account. And I started to speak my mind And a lot of the time I would post things and I would be shaking as I posted them. 
and I have my husband who's incredible with great support and each time I'd you know he's very sobering so if I write something and it's not good he'd laugh and just say no that's don't be an idiot or he'd say yes you can do it you know you've got this so I kept writing and I guess the more stupid I was the more I put myself out there and I was shaking with nerves the easier it got <laughs> so does that make sense yeah, definitely. And I love your whole ethos because you've just mentioned your um, Instagram account and your Instagram account handle is life begins at menopause, which is just such a nice way to view it. And I'm going to ask you what's problematic about society's current perception of menopause. And I was thinking about this before talking to you. And through history, I think women that can't bear children for whatever reason are just completely vilified and seen as a failure when that is just not the case at all. I think that if you trace society, um, society's views of menopause way back when, women would get sectioned for being in the menopause if they were considered as going mad. And then you come forward to 2022, you know, people started to talk out with Black Lives Matter and started to be braver to drop the eggshells, you know, and just start talking about it. And then I guess it evolved organically into mental health. And now everything's coming out the woodwork, including menopause. And people aren't afraid to, to talk about it. I have specifically designed my, my page with pink and blue and glitter. A, because it was my mum's favourite colour. You know, anything glitter, favourite colours, sorry. Anything that was sparkly, she loved. So I've done it in her honour. But B, because everywhere I looked that anyone was talking about the menopause, it was very grey. And it's not, it's really, really not, Molly. Once you get on top of your symptoms, once you speak to other people and you start talking, you see these little faces pop behind the wall going, yes, I feel like that too. And then another brave person will. And before you know it, the whole room's lit up with saying you know, oh my God, I'm feeling like that too. What do we do about it? And women by nature are designed to be social and to be together in their tribe. And so, you know, it just takes one person to stand up and say, look, life begins now. You know, life is, it's good. Let's talk about it. Don't be afraid to discuss this. And um, for everyone else to join and say, yeah, you know what? I agree. And I feel like this too. And just going back to the, you know, I look at my little boy. Um, he's not so little anymore. It's eight and a half, Johnny. And then I look at my mum and I look at the difference in their inner monologue and their narrative. So my mum didn't discuss the menopause. She was very stoic about it. She got on with it. And yet on the flip side of that, my little boy and I were watching a clip the other day about another kid talking about his mental health. And for him, it's very natural to talk about it. He's been brought up in a world where, yeah, why wouldn't you talk about how you feel? Of course. And it's very, very liberating to be able to bring someone into this world from the beginning who feels like that rather than having to get to 37 and realise that no one's talking about the menopause and actually have to be brave and do something about it. Yeah, I suppose it's about being open, isn't it? And especially in the workplace now, it doesn't seem to be fully there, but it does seem to be that workplaces are starting to talk about menopause a bit more because people with menopause really do, it really does affect your work, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I um, before I gave up media to retrain a couple of years ago, I was in media. I was working with this beautiful black lady and we would cross notes, we would swap notes because I'm Jewish and she'd, she'd kind of ask me, what can I say without offending anyone? And I'd say, what can I say without offending anyone? And we, you know, we had no bars held, uh, no, no holes barred, sorry. And, uh, and it was lovely and it was really, uh, it was really educational to hear from her how, how to speak without offending anyone. And, and I think she found the same. And with that, we both were menopausal. And we would have our water cooler moments and we would swap notes about uh, the menopause and how it's affecting us. And Molly, it was only when COVID hit that I stopped traveling into town and I had many more hours on my hands that I realized the magnitude of my symptoms. And so I think in the workplace, I was lying to myself and really covering up oh, just the symptoms that I was struggling with. And so when time stopped, when time stood still and I wasn't on the go constantly, my symptoms caught up with me and I, I realised how badly I'd been suffering. And, and that's when I made the decision that I was going to help women in the, in the workplace specifically. 
because I've been there. And uh, it was only when I admitted it to myself, I started to be able to unpick everything and put myself back together. So you're, you're now helping people that are in the workplace. What needs to be done there to make the situation better for women going through menopause? What needs to be done to break the bias that's currently there? It starts from HR, inevitably, and there needs to be a safe space for people to go, to be encouraged to attend, and to go and be in a group setting with other safe people, a judgment-free zone, where one person is brave enough to stand up and say, look, I'm feeling like this. I didn't sleep well last night. I'm really hot. All I want is sugar. And then others to say, I'm feeling exactly the same. Um, so an area and a, a safe, judgment-free place where everyone can talk and air their views, coupled with guidance, because there is an alternative. I don't eat sugar anymore. It took me a while to get there, but I, do, I can't eat sugar because it lights up my brain and it's like a drug for me. And I found that my energy levels, my moods, my fatigue, you know, all of these have leveled out. My hormones have leveled out. So I think those two things, I think, are a very safe space um, with guidance on how to overcome those symptoms is key to getting us through this. Yeah. And I suppose if you're not in a position where your workplace is being proactive in doing that, then at least finding someone who's going through the same thing as you in the workplace and maybe using them as a friend like you did would be a good place to start. Yeah. You know, I said about the theme of suppression. Mm. Um, if you don't deal with it, if it doesn't come out naturally, it will stay in your body and it will manifest in different ways. So it's really important to let it out to, exactly to a friend or to, a, a, you know, we've got kind of first aiders in um, workplaces. We did when I was there. I know we do in some workplaces now. Um, you know, you could hit a wall and it could be suppressed. You could not talk about it. And then you will end up getting a headache or you will end up reaching for the wrong food or you will end up snapping at somebody. And these are all signs of suppression that we're not dealing with it. If there was a mental health first aider there for the menopause, somewhere you could go to and let it out. But like my daughter does when she cries and I'm there with her, strong, holding her hand, and then she feels better and she goes on with her day. You know, this is what we need. We need to, we need to notice that we're feeling like this and stay curious with it. So what's happening? Okay, you're feeling like that. That's okay that you're feeling like that. Just feel it. Feel it with me. I've got your hand. It's okay. And then we go through it and then we feel better. We go back to our desks, take a deep breath, and we're able to apply ourselves to our work with a fresh mind. That's really interesting. And I, I think just doing that and having that, you know, awareness that other people going through it and not it's not just you makes a real difference doesn't it and I think there's also a perception that menopause just affects you know fairly elderly women and that is just not the case at all is it I mean you've gone through it prematurely with surgery I knew people at university who went through early menopause at like 13 years old it really does affect a broad range of people if there's women listening to this podcast right now who perhaps feel a bit isolated or are going through those stages of menopause, what would your advice be for them having gone through it yourself? So it's a very scary place to start. But the first thing is to know that they're not alone and that it's not the end. It is just the beginning. It was just the beginning for me. It really, really was. I didn't say that lightly, like begins at menopause. And I had to really hunt for things to kind of comfort me. There's books out there. Um, Cynthia Thurler, who I mentioned earlier, has got a book coming out on fasting and she really focuses on the menopause. I've got my Instagram account. There's loads of other books. There's a wonderful book by Sarah Gottfried called The Hormone Cure which is phenomenal. And that was a real game changer for me. There's podcasts galore. There's other Instagram accounts. And then there's, you know, people out there, I guess I'm not the only menopause coach out there. You know, there's, there's people out there who have your back and are doing this for you. So come and join the tribe, come and get on board and let's wave the flag. The tide is turning, Molly, and we're a part of that. 
And I'm doing that for my mom who didn't have a voice and I'm doing that for my kids so that they're not in this position. So come on board. <laughs>